Welcome to Going Local with Bill McKibben's conference call. My name is Michelle, and I will be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I will now turn the call over to Ms. Bonnie Shaw. Ms. Shaw, you may begin. Thank you, Michelle. Hi, everybody. My name's Bonnie. I'd like to welcome you all to the Going Local call. This is the first in a series of local economies calls with the Community Matters folks. Um, these will be held every fourth Thursday, um, and uh, you can find out more about them at communitymatters.org. Uh, today, we're really lucky to be joined by Bill McKibben, author and activist and, and inspiration. Um, what we're going to do is, uh, is Bill's going to give us an introduction and um, and share some of his insights for about 15, 20 minutes, uh, and then we're going to open the lineup for questions and answers. So uh, get ready. When we get to that point, Michelle, our operator, will give us some instructions on how to do that. In the meantime, everyone's highly encouraged to join us on the Google Doc that we have running in there. We're collecting thoughts. We're collecting questions notes, any case studies and links and resources to examples of local economies projects, articles and anything else that you'd like to share with the group. Um, so please sit back, uh, enjoy uh, listening to Bill and get ready to ask some questions. So uh, Bill, I'll hand it over to you. Well, thank you very much and thanks so much to the people at Orton for sponsoring all this and to my old and dear friend John Barstow for asking me to do it. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and to be thinking about this question of local economy some. I know you're going to be delving into it for an entire season, so I'll try to just um, give a little bit of introduction since I've been writing and thinking about this for a good long while. And I thought for a while about what the best way in might be, and I think what I'm going to do is talk about two categories of reasons for why we might want to be thinking locally now, and they're different um, but related, and one of them is pleasure, and the other is necessity. And let's start with pleasure. I, I started writing about some of this stuff because I stumbled across years ago a an interesting statistic. Every year, one of the big national polling firms ask Americans if they're happy with their lives. And the percentage of Americans who say they're very happy with their life peaks in 1956 and goes steadily downhill since then. At the moment, it's about a quarter of Americans who will make that claim, even though you know the standard of living, so-called, has almost trebled over those three decades. And when people look at that data and try to figure out what's going on, the answer seems to be emerging that the biggest reason is a kind of loss of connection and a loss of community, uh, which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. The thing we started doing in those uh, post-war years was devote most of our energy uh, to the project of building bigger houses farther apart from each other uh, that had huge environmental consequences, which I've spent much of my life working on, but it also had huge social consequences, too. You simply ran into people less often and had half as many uh, uh, meals 
friends and family and neighbors as they did in the 1950s. The average American had half as many close friends as they did in the 1950s. Truly, staggeringly large-scale changes uh, in our basic life. And I wonder if all this change left us uh, less than overjoyed. Now, the question that it comes quickly to mind is what to do about all this. And I think one of the reasons, one of the things that began to become obvious to me was that uh, it didn't do much good to preach about community and connections and so on and so forth. Uh, we didn't fall away from them because we decided not to. We fell away from them because the institutions that brought us into daily contact with each other began to disappear. Uh, among them, local businesses and local economies. And the reaction to that, which started from all sorts of places, but most powerfully the local food movement, was uh, in a kind of subterranean sense, I think, a reflection of that desire for connection again. And I'll give you just a single statistic that to me makes this point in compelling fashion. Um, I know that farmers markets have been the fastest growing part of our food economy for 15 years now, and for many reasons, uh, you know, uh, better, better environmental outcomes, better food, but also better connections. A pair of sociologists followed shoppers a few years ago. First around the supermarket and then around the farmers market. All of you have been to the supermarket, you know how it works. You walk in, you fall into that light fluorescent. France and, and visit the stations of the cross around the supermarket. That's about it. When they followed people around the farmer's market, they found that on average they were having 10 times more conversations per visit. They were re-knitting some of those uh, lost ties. Uh, and it's no wonder that we enjoy that experience. The only odd thing perhaps is our claim that it's a, a, a wonderful, chic, new invention of Americans, when in fact the farmer's market's how almost all human beings have always shopped for food until 50 years ago and how 70% of the planet still does. So, of course, we like it. We're kind of evolved to like it. And so to me, the most interesting stories about local economies are stories about the reemergence of those connections uh, and about the need for them to reemerge in a society increasingly dominated by extremely impersonal and oversized institutions, uh, uh, the Walmarts of the world. And you can see the data in all kinds of ways. When, say, a Walmart moves into a county, things like political participation go down, rates of volunteerism and things like that decline, especially among young people. Um, um, so there are deep and powerful reasons of, eh, I'm calling them pleasure here, but there's something deeper than that. Complementing those, pushing those, maybe more immediate and more direct, is a series of reasons that one might call necessity. And as we start thinking about these, let's reflect for a minute on events of the last few years. Uh, the economic crisis through which we are now coming, at least I hope we are. Um, the one thing, if nothing else, that uh, 
that economic crisis proved was that there was a category big fail. Uh, banks had become so large that their failure threatened everything around them. They were tottering giants that when they fell uh, would would lay waste the landscape. Now, as it turns out, um, banking and finance aren't the only big Ms. Shaw, you are in back into the call. Thank you very much. Hi, folks. Uh, apologies. I think Bill's been having a little trouble with his uh, with his reception on his line. Um, his, his so if you can just stick around and um, we'll have him back in a minute. In the meantime, if uh, if anybody would like to keep adding notes to the Google document, uh, I'm seeing some really great questions coming there. And some really fantastic notes. Um, I think we had Bill uh, talking, I think his last comments were starting to talk about the um, impacts of some of the larger retail units coming into local communities um, and, and what that means for uh, what he was talking about in terms of uh, pleasure and local economies. He made some really great points initially there around uh, happiness and the impact of uh, the way our lives have changed over the last 50 years um, that has shown a remarkable decrease in the happiness of people in this, in this country. Um, he had some really great things to say about uh, farmers markets in terms of their, their impact as the fastest growing element of our food systems for a bunch of different reasons, uh, better ecological impact, better quality of food, and then better social connections, which is uh, clearly what he was really focusing on um, around the great impacts oh, of local economies. And it sounds like we've got him back. Is that you, Bill? Yes, it's me back. I'm very sorry. I have no idea what happened. When I called back in, they kept telling me to wait for the next available operator, so it took a little while. I think it's not a local operation, this phone system. <laughs> but um, I, do you want me just to try to pick up where I left off there? Yeah, sure. I was just giving a little recap of uh, some of the key points that you've been talking to around farmers markets and then uh, starting to touch on the impact of uh, large big box retail. So Done over pleasure, now we're on to necessity. And take it the, away. The, um, the trouble is that there are a, a number of arrangements in our modern life that are too big to fail. Uh, food is probably the best example, agriculture, or one of them. Uh, in a world in which, and I'm afraid I could talk at this at great length, and I won't, uh, uh, the temperature is now going up and the climate beginning to change in dramatic ways. Agriculture, especially the big industrial model that we're used to, is becoming much, much harder. Uh, witness the horrific drought across the southwest or, or things like that. Um, at the same time, the availability of cheap oil upon which that agriculture is dependent is called more into question now. And so uh, it's not at all clear uh, that we can or should continue to do what we're doing, and that's one of the reasons why it's very good to see a uh, 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 powerful revolution beginning in American agriculture, a revolution towards uh, smaller, uh, more diversified, more versatile, and more resilient farms. And, you know, for a while, this was a kind of anecdotal revolution. You could see it in a few places like Vermont 
uh, or Oregon or uh, around the great farmer's market in Madison, Wisconsin, or on and on. But it's now acquired uh, sufficient steam that last year the U.S. Department of Agriculture, for the first time in 150 years, reported that there were more American farms instead of fewer. The single biggest demographic trend in uh, uh, American history, the move off the farm and into the city or the suburb has begun to reverse, and I think that's very powerful and good and interesting news. Uh, uh, the same thing is going to need to happen with energy as we grapple with the globally warming world in which we live. Uh, we're no longer going to be able to depend on those great centralized fuel sources, fossil fuels, uh, whose very logic is centralizing and large-scale. You have a bunch of coal, it makes sense to build a big coal-fired power plant and run a lot of lines to it. Um, instead, um, um, we're uh, dealing with new energy sources, sun and wind, that are uh, uh, inherently local. Um, nowhere concentrated, everywhere present, but in diffuse quantities, and hence it makes a lot more sense to imagine what the engineers call a, a distributed uh, generation system, a, a grid, uh, a kind of farmer's market in electrons where the power pouring off my roof, uh, solar panels on my roof, you know, is cooling the beer in my neighbor's refrigerator before the Red Sox game tonight. And that's a um, beautiful model. And we see that model, I think, beginning to grow, and it could grow much faster if we changed policies, uh, particularly pricing carbon to, to reflect the damage it does to the atmosphere. But I think one of the reasons that it's growing, and one of the reasons, oddly, that the local food movement is growing, is that we increasingly have an analog to these things that we use every day in our lives. And that's the farmer's market in information and ideas represented by the Internet. And I think sometimes we don't stop uh, often enough to uh, remind ourselves what an astonishing change that has been, uh, the way that we took those centralized and few sources of information and made them small and many. Uh, we began, each of us, to put information into the system and take information out. And it, of course, comes with certain costs, as anyone who spent half their life answering email these days knows. But it also allows for a kind of different perception of the local than we've had before. Pretty much always before in human history, people have had to decide whether they're going to <clears throat> live a rooted at-home life in the place where they grew up, where they, or whether they're going to, as we say, go out in the world and make something of themselves. And that choice is no longer quite as constrained. Uh, the spread of these new technologies allows us for the first time to imagine a, a fully rooted economically and sort of socially local life that's also always open to the outside world, where there's always a window open, as it were, to blow in new ideas, blow out old prejudices. Um, and that's a, uh, a potentially remarkable change and one that could have really powerful uh, 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 really powerful implications, I think. One of the few wild cards that's kind of breaking the right way in the world right now. Um, when I talked about necessity, I talked about the necessity uh, because of the kind of failure-prone nature of these systems. There's a sort of deeper necessity 
which is that we've unleashed changes, especially in climate, that are going to be reverberating for a very long time, even if we do everything right now, which we better do. But even if we do everything right, we're still entering a period of chaotic uh, uh, weather and climate, one that will favor not uh, economies focused solely on growth, which has the tendency to be geographically sprawling, um, but those focused on resilience and durability, uh, uh, on security, which I think tend to be more local. So I, I, my guess is that having spent the last hundred years throwing out our economic lines a great distance, we're going to spend much of this century reeling them back in to one extent or another. And I think that the communities that are most intact and most able to do this will be at a great advantage uh, in time going forward. And that's why it's so good to see all the sort of efforts emerging, the kind of uh, ways of thinking about this that Orton has been promoting, the kind of work that groups like Amoeba and Ballet are doing uh, to really organize local businesses and help spread this notion of local economy. Uh, the remarkable spread of the local food movement and the local war movement, which has come from nowhere. Uh, you know, I wrote a piece six or seven years ago for Gourmet Magazine about feeding my family for a year with food only from our valley, and it was the first piece of that kind of the time. It seemed like a great shocking thing, and now everybody knows somebody who's uh, uh, making efforts like that. Um, um, it's wonderful, wonderful to see how quickly it's happening, and there's an almost endless amount of room for its expansion and spread, uh, which is, I, I think, very good news. So I guess one way of saying this is we're going from a world, I hope, of big and few to a world of small and many, and uh, along the way we'll have great uh, 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 benefits both for our environment and, and, and but also for our person for our community, for our sense of who we are, and for how we're connected to each other. And I think at this point I've officially rattled on longer than I was supposed to. So I will stop talking and say thank you again. And uh, and if there are questions, uh, I'd be uh, pleased to get to them. Fantastic. Thanks, Bill. Um, and that was a really great overview of, of some of the thinking that you've been leading, uh, leading us all on. I think that comment for me that resonated the most is that we're going from a world of big and few to a world of small and many. Um, and, uh, and and so I'd like to take this chance now to hand over to Michelle, our operator, to explain uh, how everyone on the call can um, can use their phones to ask Bill some questions. Um, Michelle will handle this and uh, and we'll queue you up so that you can all have a chance to speak to this. Um, and uh, I'd encourage everyone to keep adding their notes and their um, their questions into the Google Doc as well so we can keep a record of it and make that available to everyone. So, Michelle, if you want to let everyone know how they can start to ask their questions, that would be great. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. There will be a delay before the first question is announced. If you're using a speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone phone. Thanks, Michelle. Um, so, uh, 
So, Bill, is there uh, is there anything that you'd like to kind of kick us off on in terms of some of the, the more recent thinking you've had or, or where you're seeing this, this kind of work go um, in communities that you're working in? Oh, I mean, it's so much fun to see it happening all over the place. Of course, I spend most of my time working on these big climate change questions, which on the one hand are global and on the other hand inevitably local. And along with what I've been describing, that's sort of the way we've organized this huge movement we're building called 350.org, a name, a group that takes its name from what scientists tell us is the safe amount of carbon in the atmosphere, 350 parts per million on number, I fear. We're already well past it, about 390 parts per million. When we started three years ago, um, we uh, didn't want to do a march on Washington. There seemed something odd about telling everybody to drive across the country to protest climate change. And so we set up, first in this country and then around the globe, a huge local network. And we've done these days of action uh, that CNN has described as the most widespread days of political action in the planet's history. The last one had 7,400 demonstrations in 189 countries, every place but North Korea. Um, and our theory is that we'll be able to build uh, uh, political power at that kind of very local level that will have big global impacts. And of course, as we do it, we're working with groups all over the world who are doing good practical things as well in their own communities, um, working on local power uh, of all kinds. And that's really, really good to see. Uh, and it's, it's exciting to see that kind of work going on, not just in food, not just in energy, uh, uh, but in politics, too, in a sense, because many of these questions that we're talking about are uh, inevitably political. Fantastic. So uh, I, I'm sure that there are a lot of people on this call that are just desperate to, to ask you some of their questions. So, Michelle, if you have people in the queue, feel free to bring them in right now. At this time, I'm showing no questions. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchstone phone. Okay, so uh, while we're waiting for a few questions to queue up, um, I'm going to pull a few from the, the Google Docs. We've got a whole bunch in here. Um, so, Bill, uh, a question that, that I think would be really interesting to kind of kick us off further is, um, is this idea of... Um, looking at how individuals and communities can trial local experiments, and I think this really touches on the work you're doing with 350, and then work together to collaborate on scaling solutions across regions in the world. So when you talk about this kind of idea of local action, what are you seeing people do um, at a local level that is then scaling up and, and being transferred Right. So there's terrific examples in, uh, for instance, the transition town initiatives uh, that have now started in uh, Cornwall in England and have spread out all over the uh, planet uh, with people taking some of the same steps toward making their communities uh, ready for the transition uh, through peak oil and around climate change and things. And We'd actually done a call with those guys a go. couple of months ago. So yeah. They've developed a whole toolkit for just this kind of work. And in this country, uh, you know, much of their work is through groups like the uh, Post Carbon Institute and things like that um, that are all, I mean, that's extremely interesting and powerful work. Um, um, groups like BALE, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, 
have figured out how to work in many, many places on these uh, questions around local business and, and AMIBA, too, A-M-I-B-A, uh, acronym I can no longer remember what the component parts of are, uh, but I bet you can Google them and figure it out. Um, um, these are... Um, you know, these are examples of that kind of Internet-enabled uh, uh, diffusion of ideas that I was talking about and that I think may be our uh, salvation uh, so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel place after place after place. Uh, uh, a great comment. And uh, looking again, uh, Michelle, do you have any questions lined up? Yes, we do have a question queued up. Our next question comes from Cliff Kolsonskit. Please go ahead. Yes, hi. Thanks for, for being on with us. I, I was wondering as far as the uh, E.F. Schumacher Small is beautiful uh, concepts there, if you think if there's anything that we need to, you know, think differently or update some of those concepts from his writing for where we are right now. Well, I mean, Schumacher is a great prophet. I'm going over to give the lecture at the 100th anniversary of Schumacher's birth in Bristol in the UK in the fall, and along with Rob Hopkins from uh, the Transition Town Initiative. Uh, you know, he was writing along, you know, 35 years ago now, and so it's a, you know, he's dealing with a different set of problems in certain ways than we have at the moment, but there's... Uh, much there um, in in that legacy, and luckily, uh, you know, people have taken up that banner, the Schumacher Institute, in this country, which just combined forces with the New Economics Foundation in uh, Britain to form the New Economics Institute. I think that's what it's called. Uh, is doing all kinds of interesting work, including around one area we haven't discussed yet, which is local currency. Um, uh, and there's some really profound and powerful uh, experiments underway. One of the um, one of the most uh, glorious is in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, the kind of Berkshires project. And there's two or three million dollars worth of these Berkshires in circulation now, redeemable at four or five hundred local business establishments. You can get them from cash your paycheck in them if you want, and it's um, very very good to see. Uh, the, that kind of thinking spreading because we're going to need experiments like that in order to figure out how we build down some of these enormous uh, institutions. It's not an easy job building them down. When things get big, um, it's hard to take them apart again. Um, but we're going to need to, um, um, and we're going to need to do it, I, I think, more quickly than we otherwise would like to. Um, because we're running into the one wall that Schumacher didn't, couldn't have anticipated, this real strong physical limit uh, uh, that set by climate uh, on how much bigger we're supposed to get. Bill, you, uh, you just touched on local currencies there, and we've got a question in the Google Doc from Julie Hopkins. Um, she's asking for some examples on how you sell business owners on the... Uh, on the idea. Uh, do you have any suggestions or any uh, anecdotes that you can speak to? Well, I mean, the that? people at Susan Witt and the people at the Schumacher Institute would have lots of good specific uh, answers to that. But in general, uh, you know, local business owners are precisely the people 
who need to and want to most get with this program because they're the ones who have lost the most thoroughly from the um, uh, uh, you know invasion of the big boxes, invasion of the internet, invasion or anything else. Uh, they badly need to figure out ways to keep money close to home, and local currency schemes of various kinds are one way. Um, they only work uh, when and if businesses decide to cooperate instead of compete locally, uh, and uh, uh, when they understand that the job is building a local market in general, not just building their own particular business. And those are things that are hard for us. I mean, one of the things, one of the subtexts running through my whole talk today, I think, is that we're going to need to move from an era of hyper-individualism, which is what we've been in, the kind of high consumer life in which we've led, to a, a, a era of somewhat more community-minded thinking. And businesses uh, very much need to lead the way for very practical reasons. I just wanted to do a little plug for the uh, the next call we have coming up. Uh, it's actually going to be Susan Witt from the New Economics Institute. Um, so uh, people are particularly how was that for people, a plug? Uh, uh, so uh, thank you for and everyone that should uh, pay attention to her. Very few people have studied this question of local money and currency more thoroughly, and she has great stories to tell. I knew that that uh, Berkshire's thing was working when I went up there to give a talk at the, I think, the occasion of their millionth dollar in circulation. And, you know, it wasn't just, you know, vegan back rub parlors and things that you could spend it at. I spent my uh, Norman Rockwell on a uh, uh, ice cream bar from the, you know, Mr. Frosty truck as it was going by and got my change in... I forget what, W-E-D, the boys, I think, was on the note that I got back in change. Um, um, and it was, you know, that clued me in that this was something that had permeated deep into the community. Michelle, do you, uh, do you have any other uh, callers on the line? Yes, our next question comes from Silvana. Please go ahead. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone phone. So while we're waiting for that, I might, uh, I might jump into another question on the document here. Um, this, one, this is the first question we had in from Paul Fix, uh, who's in Hardwick. Um, his question is, uh, we're talking about wanting more and better for us, our family, our town, our state, our country. Um, and uh, so how can we quickly build effective working examples of better rather than more? So um, I, think, uh, I think what Paul's trying to get here is uh, looking at scaling up for quality rather than quantity uh, and really kind of looking at, um, I think, feeding into this idea that we've been talking around around prototyping and experimentation to drive for better quality in local communities. Yeah, I mean, look, food is the place where it's happening first, and Hardwick is one of the best examples on earth. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the question that's hard always and one that they're trying to address there is how you get past the point that paying people a decent wage to produce 
uh, a decent product doesn't drive its cost beyond the ability of people to pay. Um, and that's hard. One of the lessons I think we're learning from the food movement is that we need some sort of intermediate scales. Um, you know, we definitely do not need farms with 10,000 head of swine on them. Um, we also, you know, probably can't afford, most of us, farms, you know, buying pork from farms where they have, you know, eight pigs where they know the name of each one. Uh, it's the farms that we've lost, the family farm scale of the 50s and 60s with three or 400 head of whatever um, that we're missing most in a way right now. And the same is probably true in many other areas. Uh, we're going to need a certain amount of aggregation uh, of energy and of other things, and the question's always going to be how big is too big, how high should the windmill go, so on and so forth, and those questions will always be on some scale of efficiency versus democracy, uh, uh, cost versus quality, and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're going to have to learn to strike much better bargains uh, than we have in the past about those, and Part of that just means rebalancing in each of our own economic lives what it is we're willing to spend our money on. One of the one of the good pleasures, of course, is that uh, to some degree we can substitute um, uh, uh, the pleasures of connection for the pleasures of consumption. So when you go to the farmer's market, if it's 10% more expensive, but you have 10 times more conversations while you're there, um, that may work out in some kind of economic calculation just fine for a lot of people. It's a really nice way of putting it. Um, when you talk about aggregation and collaboration, uh, there's a really great question here from Wendy Heilig, uh, who's based in Cabot, um, talking about local business owners um, and uh, and trying to find ways to to help them, uh, local business owners, to help entre entrepreneurs see the advantage of collaboration with others in their town, um, to help them grow each other's businesses to a more sustainable level without competing uh, or seeing each other as, as threatening competition. Have you seen any examples of how that Sure, you don't have well? to go very far from Cabot to find them. I mean, we were just talking about Hardwick, and that's probably the perfect example, where the food, uh, the various food ventures there as it were, feed off each other, um, and very powerfully. And I think uh, all the guys involved in pretty much everything, from you know high mowing seeds to the Claire's restaurant to the uh, you know Highfields Composting Institute to so on and so forth, have all learned how um, to make uh, uh, it all more than the sum of its parts. Uh, any thriving business community helps uh you know everybody who's involved um and and it's only in our um you know sort of winner take all mindset that we've evolved that we've begun to think that the purpose of businesses is to put other businesses out of business um uh you know smart and sensible entrepreneurs recognize that other people's success is their success as well and that thriving communities are uh, the, a prerequisite for thriving local business. So I, I just want to give uh, Michelle another chance to see if we have any more questions on the line. Can you give us an update, Michelle? Yes. Our next question comes from 
Joan May. Please go ahead. Hi, Bill. This is Joan May in Telluride, Colorado. You have been here. And um, I'm listening, just trying to come up with practical solutions of what uh, governments can do and what uh, individuals can do to, you know, shift the mindset. It's kind of similar to that last question about, um, you know, what actions can we take to start moving things in the right direction. I mean, these all seem really... Big picture, like get rid of Walmart and make no, sure no, the farmer, farmers market. We're unlikely to get rid of Walmart. Um, <laughs> they have enormous political power. Um, in a sense, we're going to have to work uh, around them. And uh, our political bodies can be a great deal of help or hindrance, and it's important to make sure that they help. Um, at the moment, of course, they hinder. Um, there are an endless tax breaks for big uh, everything, including probably especially big agriculture and big energy, but also big retail and everything else. Um, um, you know, they build exits off highways for big box stores. They uh, uh, make sure that they're catered to in every way. We need to make sure that instead that local businesses, which employ more people and at better wages, are uh, 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 get. Um, get the support they need, and there are things that can be done. So, for instance, in Vermont, where we are, they're busily uh, trying in the state capital to figure out how to build more local food processing infrastructure around the state, more low mobile slaughterhouses, more canneries, more things like that, relatively low cost to build and replace the uh, rural infrastructure that went missing uh, as we centralized food production. Uh, in energy, we can do things like feed-in tariffs that allow uh, homeowners to put solar panels on their roof and get a decent price for the extra energy that they produce and send down the grid. Um, uh, you know, name a name a area, and there are um, examples like that that will speed and accelerate these revolutions, which is what we really need to have happen. Unfortunately, given the stakes with things like climate change, we can't just let them proceed at their own easy, natural pace. In a hundred years, that might yield us a different world, but we don't have a hundred years to wait, and so we have to figure out, legislatively and other ways, how to speed up that process. So, that's uh, thanks, thanks, Bill. That's a, a really uh, great insight and. Uh, and I, I know you started to touch on um, some of the environmental and energy impacts there. We have a, a bunch of questions here um, around that topic, and I'd, I'd like to kind of draw our attention to some of those now. Um, there's, there's one here around, in the Google Doc here, around the mention of local energy in addition to local food. Um, and we are... So what are we talking about here? This is from Chelsea in Missoula, um, talking about su supporting local and smaller forest production producers um, and really kind of looking, I wonder if you could ex expand a little on what you've been talking about around looking at local energy production um, as a means of distribution and, and uh, sure. we can talk a little bit more about that. Uh, you know, it's always a tricky problem because there's no perfect source of energy that doesn't cause some problem someplace. So, you know, we go from, uh, say, big centralized coal-fired power plant, we move to uh, local
chemical biomass production. Uh, that's probably better, although uh, it can produce a lot of carbon too, and done badly, it can result in clear-cut forests. Uh, so the thing we need to do is figure out what kind of scale to do it on that makes sense. Um, you know that there are battles in many parts of this country over putting windmills up because people say, I don't want to look at them. Um, you know, landowners on Nantucket have been saying, we don't want out of our vacation home to be looking at windmills out, out to sea um, because we don't think they're handsome. Um, uh, you know, one can have some sympathy with that argument. Um, I think in general, one needs to try and link uh, the people who are benefiting from the power that they're producing uh, with the costs of that production. So, for instance, at the moment, if you're burning most electricity in this country, the people who are getting impacted the most are people who live in the mountains of West Virginia and Kentucky, whose mountains are being blown up, and people who live in, you know, the low-lying Pacific Islands and along the Delta of Bangladesh, whose uh, seas are rising. Um, you know, um, um, on and on. Uh, uh, my sense is usually to give the benefit of the doubt to local power production, but of course to do it carefully, and that's one of the things that communities are good at, having some idea of what fits and doesn't fit in their community. But this is one of these places where you also have to be global-minded, too. And energy is the biggest and most contentious and difficult problem that we face. Uh, the only thing we know for certain is that our current way of doing it is utterly ruinous. That's powerful words. Um, Michelle, I want to throw to you and see if, uh, if there are any more people on the line um, that have some questions. Um, and then we'll get ready to wrap up and, and look for some key actions that people can, can take to get involved with. Our next question comes from Sylvina. Please go ahead. Pardon me. Your line is currently open and interactive. You can go ahead with your question. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone phone. So it sounds like we've got a couple of technical difficulties. On the With line. that line, I open it up, but I don't hear anything. Maybe their line is on mute. If they queue up again, I'll go ahead and open up the line. We do have another question. Did you want me to go ahead and? Please go ahead. Okay. Our next question comes from Gladys Inman. Please go ahead. Yes. Um, so the, my name is Gladys Inman. I'm calling from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And my question to you is how do you uh, advise urban cities to take advantage of the uh, communities to come together with the farming, farmer's market and energy? Uh, my feeling is that some of the things I'm hearing is good for the small, for the towns in the country and those that have lived in the rural area, but how do we in the urban areas apply some of these um, implementations? Gladys, first of all, thanks for the question. Second of all, very glad you survived the heat last week. <laughs> yes, um, thank you. Um, I think cities are in some ways the easiest place to carry out these kind of changes, simply because they're places where uh, of population density, 
where strong community and the, the kind of economies it can breed are really possible. Now, let's think about, say, energy. New York City, which is the most compact uh, you know, place in the country, just issued a report last week. They, had, they used uh, satellites and airplane-mounted cameras to look at every rooftop in the city. And they figured that even crowded New York City could, just on its rooftops, produce about half its energy uh, uh, from solar panels on those rooftops. My guess is that Baltimore, at a lower latitude and slightly less dense population, uh, could probably produce an even greater percentage than that uh, uh, once it got going and really ratcheted up that uh, solar panel production. Look at things like food. Um, again, I know New York City best because I lived there for years. Uh, you know, 100 years ago or 75 years ago, when New York was an even larger city than it is now, it supplied almost all its food locally, and that's why they called New Jersey the Garden State, you know. Uh, it was growing for the city. Um, that's the kind of links we need to establish. About two-thirds of the food in America is actually grown in counties adjacent to metropolitan areas. It's just that it enters the huge industrial food stream, uh, kind of undifferentiated product at the moment, instead of being used locally. And so those challenges are all about distribution, uh, organization, all that kind of setup. Um, um, but, uh, you know, we're beginning to make strides in those directions, and it's awfully, awfully nice to see. I don't know what the farmer's market situation is in Baltimore, but I'd be surprised if there weren't some vibrant ones. It turns out, interestingly enough, that the biggest users of farmer's markets in this country are not sort of young urban professionals with lots of money to spend. The biggest users are recently arrived immigrants from other countries. And I think the reason is that these are actually people who can still remember what food tastes like and are unwilling to accept the uh, kind of simulations that you can buy at the supermarket. And um, so that's an interesting sign for thinking about our urban areas, I think. It's a, a great response, Phil, and um, some really interesting uh, information that I certainly didn't know um, and, and some powerful calls to action there around uh, some, uh, some even more great reasons to go visit farmers markets. Uh, I think we have time for one more question, uh, Michelle. If, if you have any lined up uh, before we move into a couple of key actions that people can take. Our next question is comes from Sylvina. I have Sylvina. Please go ahead. See if we can do third time lucky here. Sylvina, your line is open and interactive. You can go ahead with your question. If your line is on mute, can you please unmute your line? Or if you're on a speakerphone, can you please pick up the handset? Sylvina, if uh, if it's it, it sounds like we have some problems here. Um, if you have access to the Google Doc, I ask you to try and get your question in, uh, and I'll make sure that we we ask it. Um, I have access to that right now, so I can pull it up. If you can write it in. Um, Otherwise, if you can get it into the document, we'll uh, make sure that it gets addressed um, and uh, and sent out and distributed after the call. Um, Michelle, do we have any more people on the line with questions? At this time, I'm showing no questions. 
All righty. So uh, I'm going to start to wrap up the call now. Um, and, and what we usually like to do at the end of these calls is uh, ask for a couple of core and very specific actions that people can take. So, Bill, um, for everyone on the line right now, uh, if they were going to go and take some of what we've talked about today and take some of your key insights um, and translate that into three core things that they could go out and do in their own community tomorrow or next week. Um, oh, well, I'm pretty much sure that everybody on this call is already doing the kind of core things that, you know, shopping at and building uh, that local food infrastructure and local retail infrastructure, thinking hard about local energy. Um, uh, you know, I suppose I'd be remiss if I didn't tell people to join our efforts at 350.org because if we're not able to, as I say, we work locally to try and deal with this climate crisis and also globally because if we're not able to significantly slow the rise of temperature on the planet, none of the rest of this is going to matter all that much anyway. And you can have the best local food system on Earth, but if the temperature rises enough so that it you know, doesn't rain for 30 days in a row or it rains every day for 30 days in a row, both of which are becoming more likely, you're not going to grow any food anyway. So we need that kind of uh, cooperation on a, on a big scale too. But uh, the good thing about local, uh, sort of local economies is uh, you, know, you can quickly figure out uh, how to support the ones that exist in your area and how to help those people band together uh, into something uh, uh, larger that will um, help them all thrive. So I very much investigate all the work that the Orton Foundation is doing on interesting planning possibilities, and I visit the people at the groups like Bale. Um, um, uh, uh, I bet everybody's already doing uh, the things they should be doing. So you already, in addition to those, uh, so you, you talked about uh, supporting local economies, shopping at farmers markets and local food centers, joining 350.org and uh, and getting involved with the folks at the Orton Foundation and Community Matters. Um, you briefly touched on the power of the Internet as a way of opening a window to people who are living very rooted lives in their local communities uh, and providing this great opportunity to bring in new ideas and, and opportunities. Um, do you want to speak to that uh, a little just before we wrap up around what opportunities there are for people out uh, out there that might be in rural or remote communities uh, that can get online and, and get involved in larger uh, initiatives or movements? Sure. All these things we've been talking about, of course, are all have huge web presences. And uh, one of the exciting things is to see it happening all over the world, uh, people able to one of the few things that's ubiquitous now around the planet, and I've traveled to all seven continents in the last few years doing climate organizing, one of the things that's ubiquitous is the cell phone, and it's allowing people to uh, band together locally in all kinds of powerful ways all over the planet that are very, very good to see, no longer being this taken advantage of by the big and powerful as they once were. Uh, so in certain senses, though my, um, you know, my uh, profession is afraid to uh, spread gloom wherever I go. Um, there are some very hopeful and interesting things going on uh, uh, all over the planet. If you, well, want to see, if you want to see pictures to cheer you up, to sort of get a sense of how people do it, go to 350.org and just thumb through some of the 
15 or 20,000 pictures in our Flickr account from every country on Earth, and it's pretty astonishing to see who your allies, who your brothers and sisters are in this work. The idea that this is something for rich white people who've taken care of their other problems is just wrong. Uh, most of the people we work with on all these issues are poor and black and brown and Asian and young because that's what most of the world is made up of, and they're thinking about exactly the same set of questions and solutions as we are here, and that's really good news. That's really inspiring. So tell me, uh, if, if people on the call do want to get involved in the next activation, um, what kind of things should they be thinking about doing? Who should they be talking to in their local community? Oh, well, go to 350.org and we'll set you all up. We have a huge day of action coming on the 24th of September that we're calling Moving Planet, and it'll be based about transportation, an issue we haven't talked that much about today, but which is also key, and uh, it'll be based largely around bicycles, um, one of the great localizing influences in our country, one of the great transportation solutions that we have, and one of the few tools that both rich and poor people around the world make full use of, and so a great way to kind of experience that kind of solidarity. It should be a really fine day, I think. Uh, the other thing that we're doing, and it's a really kind of fun project, is taking on the chambers of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, which pretends to speak for local business around the world, around the country, but instead gets most of its funding from 16 major companies, and hence is in the lead of the fight to do everything from deny global warming to, uh, you know, prevent, you know, to maintain agricultural subsidies for big providers, things like that. And so we're getting local uh, communities, local chambers of commerce to disaffiliate from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and local businesses to declare that the U.S. Chamber doesn't speak for them. And it's very exciting to watch that happen. If you go to, uh, uh, again, if you just go to 350.org, you'll see the links right away and join in that very powerful local economy kind of drive that we have going on. Thank you, Bill. That's fantastic, and I, it sounds like a great resource available for people who want to take it the next step in getting involved in the local economies in their, their own communities and uh, and much more broadly in, in a global movement. Um, so now I'm, I'm actually going to take the time to wrap up. We're hitting close to the top of the hour here, and uh, I would like to thank Bill very much for his time um, and, uh, and and everyone on the call for all of their really great questions and notes. If you haven't had a chance already, uh, we've been taking a series of collaborative notes in the Google documents that was sent out um, with the number for this call. We'll make that available to everybody that was on the call. Um, after the fact, we'll clean it up a little and try and get some answers into any of the questions that didn't get addressed today. Um, and uh, if this is the type of topic that you all are interested in, this is, uh, as we mentioned, the first of four calls on local economies coming up. The next one on August 25th will be about local finance. September 22nd, fostering entrepreneurship. And on October 27th, we'll be talking about green economies. Um, so uh, if if this is your passion, um, we'd encourage you to join us again. And um, with that, I will say thank you very much to Bill. Um, we'll make this call available as a podcast. And uh Check back at uh, communitymatters.org, and you'll be able to find it there. So, um, Bill, thank you very much for My your time. My pleasure, and, and do not miss Susan Witt. She's a really smart lady.
Yeah, I think we're all going to be looking forward to that one now, especially after the big plug you gave us. So uh, thank you very much, and um, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.